Hi, it's John here. This week's episode comes in two parts. I hadn't originally set out to do this, but for several reasons came to this decision. Firstly, this is a complicated case, with a lot of sources and over half a dozen suspects. Secondly, almost all the sources are in Finnish, which means I have to translate them, which isn't a perfect science, and then study them carefully. It meant the process took more time than usual, and the script for the podcast was longer than normal. However, fear not, you will not have to wait two weeks until part two. Part two will be released this Friday, November 17th, at 5am GMT. Thank you for listening. Sunday, May 17th, 1953, was a predictably wet day in the rural town of Isoyoki, in southern Ostrobothnia, Finland. 17-year-old Auli Kuliki Sari, known as Kuliki, was a devout Christian and took her faith seriously. Not only was she a member of the local Protestant church, but she was also an employee, having worked in the church office since September 1952. That morning, Kuliki attended the church service, before heading back in the pouring rain on her bicycle to her home just north of the town in the village of Moika. When she got through the door at about 1pm, Kaliki looked like a drowned rat and laughed with her father Aino about the state of her drenched clothes. Even her socks were soaked through. After something to eat, Kaliki went for a lay down. It was very unusual for the 17-year-old to take a rest like this in the middle of the day. Her mother, Philhermina, later said she thought her daughter's tiredness may have resulted from a vaccination shot she had been given a few days before. Her sister, Ali, speculated that Kaliki needed rest due to a head injury sustained in a bicycle accident some years previously. Whatever the reason it was noted as being out of character. At 5pm, two of Kuliki's friends, Mayu and Selma, called at the house. Kuliki had already made plans to attend a youth event later that evening with Mayu. The arrangements had been tentatively made on the previous Thursday, but Kuliki had seemed unsure whether she would attend. She had been feeling a little unwell that day and had complained her head was hurting especially when she bent down. By Sunday afternoon, Kuliki had decided she would go to the meeting, which was being held by an evangelical youth association at the public school in the village of Korti, 13 kilometres away from her home. At 6pm, Kuliki left on her bicycle, wearing her sister's mittens, as her own was still wet from the morning rain. It seems her friend, Mayu had popped back to her own house and they had agreed to meet at 6.30pm at the Dairy Crossroads en route to the youth event. Unfortunately, there was a breakdown in communication and the friends ended up missing each other. Instead, they met up when they reached Korti. It is worth saying here that Mayu later said Kaliki was unsettled all day and appeared distracted and nervous. There were lots of other teenagers and young adults present at the youth event, 
and many more young people were in Korti that night as there were several dances going on in the village. A sister and brother of Kuliki were at one of the dances. The church youth event, variously described as a prayer meeting, Bible study or devotional, formally finished at 10pm. Afterwards, Kuliki and Mayu went out into the adjoining courtyard where hot drinks were served by the son of a local farmer. Kuliki voiced to several people that she was fearful of travelling home that night. There had been an incident the previous winter when Kuliki had been skiing back through the forest on her own and something, or perhaps someone, had spooked her. She had been sufficiently scared to stop her journey, finding the nearest house from where she called home to ask her father to come and collect her. On the girl's journey back from Korti, Mayu would only be going as far as the dairy crossroads, leaving Kuliki with a six-kilometre solitary cycle home. There was a wedding taking place in the vicinity, and Kaliki was worried about coming across Larry drunk revellers along the lonely forest road. Another friend in attendance at the youth meeting, Sirka, invited Kaliki to stay with her for the night. Kaliki refused, as she said she had to go home to change her clothes ready for work in the morning. She decided to just grin and bear it. With that in mind, Kuliki and Mayu set off on their bicycles. Despite it being past 10pm, it was still light, as the sun sets very late, if at all, in that part of Finland, from May through to August. The route home first took the friends past Isoyoki's savings bank, which at the time was being used as the vicar's office, as the parsonage was undergoing repair and refurbishment. This was Kaliki's place of work. The pair then came to the edge of the forest, where they met three teenage boys who, quote, jokingly, pretended to prevent the girls from passing. After a short standoff, the girls eventually got on their way. One of the boys, who was wearing a military uniform, followed behind. The girls pedalled faster to try and put some distance between them and the boy but the ground was waterlogged, which made the going very tough. Mayu was pedalling so vigorously that she got her skirt caught between the frame of the bike and the rear wheel. The girls were forced to stop to untangle the fabric from the bike chain. The boy in the military uniform caught up with the girls and asked them what the problem was. Kaliki recognised the boy as she had seen him at the church earlier that day. He had behaved strangely and made Kuliki uncomfortable. Once the fabric was freed from the bike, the two girls continued on their way. The boy did not try to follow, but stirred and stared as they disappeared into the distance. Kuliki and Mayu next rode past a pharmacy, where they saw an acquaintance, a girl named Isla. Isla had been at one of the dances in Korti, Kuliki asked Isla if her sister Ali had been there. The girls carried on their way and soon afterwards passed a group of young people, also on bikes. They then met a couple 
who had been at the same church youth event they had attended. Kuliki and Mayu finally reached the crossroads, and the pair separated to complete the last legs of their respective journeys home. Kuliki's 22-year-old brother, Kalevi, also made the journey back from Korti that night. As mentioned, he had gone to one of the dances there. I'm not sure why the siblings did not arrange to travel back together. I guess the dance was scheduled to finish later than the youth event, and in a time long before mobile phones, making this kind of arrangement was much more complicated. On the first part of his journey home, Kalevi passed one truck and two people on motorbikes. After the dairy crossroads, he came across just two cyclists. He got back to the family home at half past midnight. There was no sign of Kaliki, and he presumed she had stayed the night with a friend in the village. The following morning, the Sari family awoke to find that Kaliki's bed had not been slept in. Aino and Wilhelmina were both a little worried, but presumed their daughter had bunked with a friend and had then gone straight to work. When Kuliki did not return home later that day, their concern grew. However, it wasn't until 8pm on Tuesday, May 19th, that Kuliki's parents phoned the local priest to inquire if their daughter had been at work. They were told she had not been seen at work for the last two days. The police were then contacted, and Kuliki was officially reported missing. There then followed a long period of rumour and suspicion. The story of the missing girl captured the nation's attention, and everyone had an opinion of what had happened to Kuliki. It would be five months later, in the autumn, that the woods surrounding Isoyoki finally gave up their secret. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and missing persons cases from all over the world. I'm John, I live in Wales, UK, and I research, write and produce this podcast. New episodes are released every other Monday. If you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, please see the link in the show notes. For as little as a price of a cup of coffee a month, you can help to ensure these historical and lesser-known cases from around the world are aired and gain exposure. The show notes are also where to find social media details, information about the sources used for each case, and transcripts for all the episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a review on your app. They make a real difference, and I love reading them. Finally, you can help others hear about Persons Unknown by sharing and recommending on social media. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to this week's episode. Q. 
poor Licky's date of birth was December 6, 1935. She was the second youngest child born to her parents, Aino and Wilhelmina. Aino worked as a farm manager. Kuliki had three sisters and at least one brother. As a young child, Kuliki attended primary school before going to the grammar school in Kauhayoki. Kuliki did not finish her schooling there as she dropped out after a serious bicycle accident. This was the same accident I mentioned earlier in which she sustained head injuries. Over the summer of 1952, Kuliki found work as a housekeeper in the village of Kokomaki before starting work at the church office. Her mother said Kuliki was shy, but very relaxed, happy and open with friends. An article on the Finnish news site IS says Kuliki had a half a dozen or so good friends and describes her as having a kind and pleasant character. Kuliki was not known to have any boyfriends or have gone on any dates. She was not interested in attending the many dances that happened for young people in the area, but preferred to join the activities organised by the local church. Kuliki's disappearance shocked the town. Her parents were adamant that she was not the sort of teenager to run away or stay out of contact with her family. From the start, they feared she'd been involved in an accident, or possibly even the victim of something more sinister. At six o'clock on the morning of Wednesday, May 20th, the day after, Kuliki's parents contacted the police. Thirty people from the locality began searching the road between Isoyoki and Pantane, a town 30 kilometres to the north. They focused on the stretch from the Sari family home to the crossroads where Mayu had last seen Kuliki. The following day, a further 500 plus people joined the efforts, and on Saturday the 23rd, the search expanded to nearby fields. Police from the city of Vasa, 155 kilometres to the north, travelled down to take part. Densely wooded areas were painstakingly combed through, hundreds of men walking in a line through the difficult terrain. Through their inquiries in the locality, police were able to uncover several pieces of information from various people who were out and about during the night of May 17th and early morning of May 18th. A 46-year-old road worker named Yako came forward to say that on the night Kaliki disappeared, he was returning to Isayaki, having been to a Pentecostal church meeting in the village of Haikila. At 10.40pm, he was passed by a young woman on a bicycle. He did not talk to the young woman as he wanted to get home quickly because his wife was sick. Yako believed this was Kuliki, although he was not 100% sure. He had seen Kuliki in the past at the church office, but he did not know her well. He saw nothing that raised suspicion in the woods, although he did note a rental car driven by a 42-year-old man named Vilho, drove past him in the direction of Isoyoki, shortly before he saw the young woman. Yako had poor hearing, 
and did not report any screams or calls for help. It is widely believed the woman Yako saw was Koliki. This is the last time she was seen. A 66-year-old cattle farmer named Hilda told police that at 12.30am on May 18th, she went out to check on her cows. While out, she heard a voice shout, quote, For God's sake, come and help. She said it was definitely not a man's voice, but could not say with certainty whether it was a woman's or a child's. I am unsure of the exact location of this report, but it was somewhere in the vicinity of Isoyoki. A farm manager named Oskari Forsby and his son reported that at 7.20am on Monday, May 18th, they came across tyre tracks and marks that looked like they had been made by a bicycle, about half a kilometre from the crossroads where Mayu had left Koliki. They also noted that there was broken glass on the ground. It looked like the scene of a struggle. This location was close to the post Yako said he had seen the woman believed to be Koliki. The Forsbys did not hear that Koliki was missing for a few days, so did not initially inform police of what they had found. By the time the police reached the spot, the marks and prints were gone. Interestingly, the glass had also vanished. A week or so after Koliki disappeared, several reports came into police of a cream-coloured car seen in the area on the night in question. The first sighting of the mysterious vehicle was at 11pm, when a witness was passed by the car with two men seated inside. One of the men was quite large, and the other was more average in size. The latter looked like he had something stuck onto his front teeth. As a note, I'm not sure what this could be referring to, and it may be that its meaning has been lost in translation. A bicycle was protruding from the boot or trunk of the car. The car did not have its headlights switched on. Later that evening, 18 kilometres from Isoyoki, in the village of Sylvie Haskavita, a mother and daughter sitting on their porch reported a similar car passing their house. They also noted a bicycle was sticking out of the partially open boot. 30 minutes later, the car returned, now travelling in the opposite direction. Two motorcyclists also came forward, saying they had seen a similar car parked on the side of a road 20 kilometres from Isoyoki. Police tried, but failed to trace the car or its owner. News of Kualiki's disappearance soon circulated throughout the region, and many local people were worried that the mysterious and sinister incident would negatively affect the area's reputation. People wanted answers quickly, and gossip, rumour and wild speculation was rife. Journalists began flocking to the area to cover the story. Townsfolk began informing on each other, and the newspapers did not help, often repeating these stories with little evidence to back them up. One such rumour was that Kaliki was pregnant when she disappeared, 
and the father of the unborn baby was the local vicar. I will circle back to this story in more detail later. On June 9th, a picture of Kualiki appeared in the press for the first time, and a witness contacted police to say she had seen a similar-looking woman in Merikavia, a town 45 kilometers from Isayaki, being chased by people through a wood. Newspapers stated as fact, this was Kualiki. It turned out to be someone else entirely. This is just one example of the many stories that were floating around, spreading confusion and doubt. Two months after Kualiki vanished, on July 22, 1953, a person was out picking berries in the woods, near where Kualiki was last seen. There, in an area of swampland, the person came across the tyre of a bike sticking out of the sodden earth. It was soon confirmed as Kudliki's bike. This location was far from the main road and well-worn paths. What was odd was that the area had been searched very early on with the use of metal detectors, but nothing had been found. Both tyres had been deflated and the handlebars twisted in such a way as to help the bike sink more easily into the soft ground. The bike frame was undamaged and in good condition. It did not look like it had been involved in a collision or accident. The leather seat was surprisingly untarnished from the swampy water. This information led to the conclusion that the bike had not been there for anywhere near two months. Thus someone had likely hidden the bike at the spot relatively recently and whoever had taken it to this lonely spot must have known the area well. Kulicki had not been involved in a tragic accident. There was now little doubt that she had been the victim of foul play. It was surely only a matter of time before they would find her body. A couple of months later, the search was extended north to the town of Quartain and the surrounding area including a nearby lake, a location 141 kilometers from Isoyoki. This followed a report from a witness who heard a woman screaming for help at 5 o'clock on the morning of May 18th. They also reported hearing men talking and the ominous sound of gunshots. The witness went to investigate and saw two men that he did not know standing next to a light-colored car with two other men sitting inside. Other people in the area also mentioned hearing gunshots at this time. Another witness reported hearing a very disturbing exchange between three people. The first person was a woman and was pleading that she had been bullied enough and wanted to be let go. The second person, a man, told another man that they should indeed let her go. The man replied, inferring that to let her go was no longer an option. A vast search around the area of Kortain and the neighbouring municipality of Letamaki began on September 12th and lasted for about four or five weeks, though nothing of note was found. In October, the search parties resumed looking in the area where the Foolsbees reported seeing tyre marks and broken glass 
on the morning of May 18th. At 9am on Saturday, October 10th, 1953, while walking through a swampy area near Isoyoki, a man named Valtteri found a shoe lying on the ground. It belonged to Kuliki. Inside the shoe was Kuliki's scarf that she had worn on the night she disappeared. The scarf had bite marks on it and it looked like it had been used as a gag. Also inside the shoe was a sock. It did not belong to Kuliki. The size and style showed that it belonged to a man. Some reports state the sock was black, where others say it was striped. There was a tear in the sock which looked like it had been made by a bladed weapon. A three centimetre long piece of thick black sewing yarn had been used to repair it. The search intensified at this location, and the following day a gentleman named Ilmari noticed a dry fir tree branch sticking out of the swampy ground. It looked odd and unnatural. This was only two metres from where the shoe was found. Ilmari pulled the stick, and it easily came out of the moist earth. He noticed the other end had been sharpened to a point. He was also suddenly overwhelmed by a foul odour. It was the unmistakable smell of decomposing remains. Fifty centimetres under the mud, Kuliki's body was discovered. Just to warn you, the following details are upsetting. Kuliki was found with her jacket wrapped around her head and shoulders. She was naked from the waist down and on her upper body, one breast was exposed. Her right hand had completely rotted away. Her fingers and toes were also missing. Although this was not made public at the time, decades later it was revealed that Kuliki was found wearing one of her sister's grey mittens. The location of the burial site was just 200 metres from the road where Kuliki was last seen. News travelled swiftly and within minutes people started to arrive at the scene. As a result, dozens if not hundreds of people passed through the burial site, leaving footprints and disturbing the ground. A few days later, Kuliki's other shoe was found nearby. The rest of her clothing, her watch, purse and the church hymn book which she carried with her that evening have never been found. A ring Kuliki always wore was found with her body. Coroner Antu Vartillo carried out a post-mortem. The cause of death was not able to be definitively pronounced, but it was noted that Kuliki had experienced blunt force trauma to the head. Both her nose and cheekbone had been fractured. This injury had possibly been inflicted with a rock or a piece of metal piping. Coroner Vartilla could categorically state that Kuliki had not been suffocated or shot. The latter fact means it is doubtful the gunshots heard near Cortain had anything to do with Kuliki's case. There was no obvious sign of sexual assault, but this has never been completely ruled out. There certainly could have been a sexual motive. It is worth remembering 
that the body was found naked from the waist down. The coroner also stated that Kulicki had not been pregnant at the time of her death. This seemed to put to bed some of the rumours that had been going around the community in the aftermath of her disappearance. As we shall see later, some people are a little more apprehensive of dismissing the pregnancy angle. It was concluded that Kulicki had not been buried at the location since May 17th or 18th. The belief was that she had been placed there after the initial searches in the area had taken place. A week or so after the murder, between June 1st and 6th, a group of farmers were near the location planting trees and they reported seeing nothing suspicious. It was also deduced that the pine tree branch that had first caught attention had pierced the stomach well after decomposition was underway, possibly up to two months after death. The branch had been sharpened by someone using their left hand. The grave itself had been skillfully constructed and demonstrated a knowledge of engineering. The bulky grave consisted of three sliced slabs of earth which folded back onto the body, sealing the grave like a lid. There was no obvious external indication that the area had been dug up. Whoever had buried the body there clearly did not ever want it to be found, and yet they had decided to mark the grave with the tree branch. Was this so they could return to the burial spot, and did it indicate a level of guilt or remorse? Kulicki's funeral took place on October 25th, 1953, with 3,000 people inside the church in Isoyoki to witness the service. I've read estimates that a crowd of anywhere between 25,000 and 100,000 turned up and surrounded the church, with mourners travelling up to 100 kilometres to be there. The murder of Kulicki had struck a chord with the public. This was due to her young age. She was seen as a symbol of innocence and integrity. Kulicki's father, Aino, gave a short speech thanking people for their support and kindness. Unfortunately, along with well-meaning mourners came a whole host of people who were there to exploit the occasion. Merchants gathered to hawk trinkets and souvenirs to commemorate the event. During the funeral service, one local business leader stood up and spoke at length for at least half an hour about how incompetent the police were in their investigation. Such was the level of feeling stirred by the rant that a crowd of thousands made their way to a local government building, demanding the killer be swiftly captured and then executed. The death penalty had been abolished for peacetime crimes in 1949, but protesters were demanding it be reinstated for murder cases such as Kulicki's. The police set about trying to find the killer by visiting every house in Isoyoki. I've read that at the time, the population for the town and surrounding area was a little under 7,000. Inquiries went much further and extended all over Finland. To help matters, the town clubbed together and raised 5,000 marker as a reward, the equivalent today of 1,100 British pounds. A newspaper added a donation, tripling the bounty. 
many names were put forward as potential suspects, often without a shred of evidence. At one point, the son of the Isoyaki police chief was touted as a suspect, despite the fact that the police chief did not have a son. Everyone was being eyed with suspicion, and even one of the lead investigators on the case, Yorma Koskela, was made to provide an alibi. Seeing the opportunity for an excursion, many prisoners gave false confessions just so they could get a trip to the woods to see the burial site. Mediums and clairvoyants were also given their pennies worth of advice. One medium, who was sought out by the Sari family, was said to have accurately predicted the burial site. Several newspapers, including the Coventry Evening Telegraph on January 20th, 1954, credit this medium with directing the search party to the location of the body. Unhappy with the way the police were organising the investigation, the family even hired a private investigator in the hope they would help solve the case. Within days of the body being found, a local farmer was heard talking loudly in a pub about whether the police had found Kuliki's shoes. At the time, this detail had not been released to the public. The man was promptly arrested, but according to press reports, he had a solid alibi and had a reputation as a good man. After a short time, he was released without charge. The investigation trundled on, but as early as February 1954, police were already beginning to suspect they may never solve the case. This is the end of part one. Part two will be released this Friday, November 17th, at 5am GMT. In it, I will detail the half a dozen or more suspects in the investigation and outline where the case stands today.